first sermon text today comes from Psalms 33. So we got a couple of Psalms today. I'm pretty excited about that. 33, 1 through 7. Sing gladly, O righteous of the Lord, for the upright praising is befitting. Acclaim the Lord with uh, the lyre, with the ten-stringed lute him to him. Sing him a new song, play deftly with joyous shout. For the word of the Lord is upright in all his doings in good faith. He loves the right and the just. The Lord's kindness fills the earth. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their array. He gathers like a mound the sea's waters, puts in treasure houses the deeps. And then Psalms 104. A little bit longer here, so bear with me, but it's a beautiful psalm. I think you'll agree. Bless, O my being, the Lord, Lord my God. You are very great, grandeur and glory you don, wrapped in light like a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent cloth, setting beams for his lofts in the waters, making his chariots the clouds. He goes on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers the winds, his ministers glowing fire. He founded earth on its solid base, not to be shaken forevermore. With the deep, you covered it like a garment. Over mountains, the water stood. From your blasts, they fled. From the sound of your thunder, they scattered. They went up the mountains, went down the valleys to the places that you founded for them. A border you fixed so they could not cross, so they could not come back to cover the earth. You let loose the springs. Among the mountains, they go. They water all the beasts of the fields. The wild donkeys slake their thirst. Among them, the fowl of the heavens dwell. From among the foliage, they send forth their voice. He waters mountains from his lofts. From the fruit of your works, the earth is sated. He makes the hay sprout for cattle, grass for the labor of humankind, to bring forth bread from the earth, and wine that gladdens the heart of man, to make faces shine brighter than oil, and bread that sustains the heart of man. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the Lebanon cedars he planted, where the birds make their nest, the stork whose home is the cypresses, the high mountains for the gazelles, the crags a shelter for gazelles, or a shelter for badgers. He made the moon for their fixed season, the sun he appointed its setting. You bring down darkness and it turns to night, in which all beasts of the forest stir. The lions roar for prey, seeking from God their food. When the sun comes up, they head home, and in their dens they lie down. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. How many your deeds, O Lord, all of them you do in wisdom. All the earth is filled with your riches. This great uh, sea, great and wide, where creatures beyond numbers stir, the little beast and the large. There the ships go, the the Leviathan you fashion to play with. All of them look to you to give them their food in its seasons. When you give them, they gather it in. When you open your hand, they are sated with good. When you hide your face, they panic. You withdraw their breath and they perish, and to the dust they return. When you send forth your breath, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the Lord's glory be forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who but looks down to the earth and it trembles, but touches the mountains they smoke? Let me sing to the Lord while I live. Let my hymn to my God while I breathe. Let my speech be sweet unto him. As for me, I rejoice in the Lord. Let offenders vanish from the earth. 
and the wicked be no more. Bless all my being, the Lord. Alleluia. So we are uh, continuing our study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And if you'll recall, last week we looked at the Holy Spirit at work in creation right at the beginning, and we saw the first appearance of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2, all the, at the very, just the second verse of the Bible. And in that verse, the Holy Spirit hovers over creation and effortly transforms the darkness of the deep chaos waters into the waters of life, where there was death, darkness, and disorder Now there was life and flourishing because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do today is continue this theme of the work of the Holy Spirit in creation, but see how it's developed a little further in these uh, beautiful Psalms. The connection of the Holy Spirit with creation and life and flourishing in abundance is a key theme in the Old Testament. And so what I want to do is spend a little more time with these ideas, these concepts before moving on, because I think that they're going to make sense of some of the different ways the Holy Spirit works in the world. They're going to help us tie together uh, some things that we might think are uh, disconnected if we don't understand this background. And so to explore these ideas, we're going to look at these two Psalms. Now, uh, just a little bit about the Psalms, because that's not something we generally preach sermons on. Uh, We use them for call to worship. We use them as inspirations for hymns, but we usually don't use them as sermon text. But, um, you know, the Psalms were written uh, to reflect and to meditate on God, his person, his works, and to aid in worship. They're meant to be reflective. And they're meant to take a deep and contemplative dive into a subject in which both the mind and the emotions are are, are, uh, engaged. We like to split those things apart. The Psalms likes to bring them together. And so that's one reason I think they're valuable. And uh, sometimes their neglect uh, really really hurts us. Uh, Because the Psalms engage both the uh, emotions and the intellect, they're ignored too often. And uh, they are challenging. They require work uh, because they demand engagement. You cannot uh, read these lightly or quickly, uh, at least if you want to get something out of them. In other words, uh, the Psalms are more than just a few thoughts strung together with pretty words, uh, as I think uh, people superficially take them. In fact, the subject of the Psalms requires, it demands this heightened poetic language because it's the only way uh, to really explore uh, these thoughts and experience. Ordinary language just won't do. Uh, more is needed to open our hearts and minds to such elevated places. And probably no subject requires this approach more than the very presence, glory, and splendor of God that is the Holy Spirit. So as we look at our first passage, uh, verse 1 and 2 tell us that it is a hymn that's meant to be sung in worship. Uh, very similar to the, the uh, a hymn like we might sing uh, in our worship service, like, uh, you know, uh, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. It's absolutely one of my favorite hymns, and uh, we really appreciate Olivia for, for stepping in and leading us in that. But the subject is the Lord, but the hymn wants us to understand that the Lord is so great 
that tired old stock songs will not do. Uh, if you look at the verse, it says a new song is needed. And I find it interesting that the psalmist is being critical of the typical praise music of his day, finding it cliched and tired. Uh, so there is truly nothing new under the sun. Um, in verse 4, we are introduced to the subject of the song, the word of the Lord. Uh, now, the word of the Lord is a phrase that's just about everywhere in the Old Testament, and it means just more, more than just the things that God says. Uh, the word of the Lord is how the Lord reveals himself to the Lord. Uh, for example, the phrase is often used at the beginning of a book by the prophets. Uh, most any prophet you turn to will somewhere say, the word of the Lord came to, and then the name of the prophet. Uh, so, of course, we've got to talk about the Hebrew here because this is Resurrection Church, and if we're not doing word studies or ancient Near Eastern uh, agricultural practice or newsomatics, I, I don't know what we're doing. But, uh, <laughs> but the Hebrew word is devar. And it's kind of cool um, for, for uh, the, the origin of it. It's kind of cool for this idea because it means what is, what is behind or what is in back of, okay? What is supporting? So if we put all these concepts together, the word of the Lord means how God is revealed in the way that the world works, as in his order, his commands, his promises. What is behind? What is in back of those? Okay. So our psalmist begins by thinking of the ways God is revealed in the world. First, God is upright, and that means everything that he does is in good faith. He's dependable. He's reliable. Uh, he fulfills his promises. You can count on them. Uh, think about that in comparison. Uh, you know, uh, my, my kids really enjoy mythology. They really enjoy Greek mythology. And if you think of the fickleness of uh, a lot of the other uh, real, the gods, uh, this would have been in stark contrast. But part of that also means uh, ordering the earth uh, and doing so with righteousness and justice. After all, it was God who had saved the Israelites from the injustice of uh, Egyptian slavery and had given them the law specifically to promote justice with their own, within their own society. Uh, you know, the law was meant to be in contrast to the Egyptian ordering of the world. And the interesting thing about this psalm is it, it then starts to go beyond this. Uh, meditating on the greatness of God, the psalmist sees this overwhelming love of the Lord for his creation and his righteous order and justice. And he sees how it, 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 it's so big, it must fill the whole earth. It just demands to do so. What is right, true, and faithful fills, uh, and this is what's probably really interesting. Um, you know, uh, once again, this is where we need to think about context here. Uh, it doesn't just fill Israel. Uh, notice it fills the whole world. How can it be otherwise as the psalmist uh, meditates on the greatness of the Lord? And this is a grandiose vision. That's why it requires this soaring language of poetry to really communicate its depths. You just can't say it in just simple words. It doesn't get across. It doesn't engage the mind and the emotions. You know, once again, I'm going to keep making a case for poetry in the Psalms. Um, however, um, it probably was as obvious to the uh, psalmist as it is to us that this vision of righteousness and justice filling the earth is not 
exactly what we experience in our daily lives. So the question then is, what, what's up with the psalmist here? Is he overly idealistic? Is he naive? Uh, is this just hyperbole? And uh, I think the psalmist's answer is no. Uh, he has an optimism about this because it is the Lord who created the heavens and everything that fills the heaven, like the sun, moon, and stars. I think if you look at the verse, um, yeah, the verse says the host, okay? Uh, my, my translation says the array. But what we're talking about here is the things that fill the, the, the sky, like the sun and the moon and the stars. And the psalmist finds this grounding for his optimism in the creation story. So, so the, the justice and righteousness of God filling the earth uh, may not seem present, but he's optimistic that it will be. It can't be otherwise because the Lord is, had ordered creation. Uh, remember last week we talked about how he had solved the problem of chaos and the problem of formlessness and emptiness, the, the tohu vabohu uh, in Hebrew, and he had done so simply by his word. Now, so that's kind of the setup here, but here's where the Holy Spirit enters into this, and this is what I want us to spend a little time looking at, and this is why I included this Psalms. Uh, if you look at verse 6, the first line tells us that it is by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. But if we look at the second line, we read that by the breath of the Lord's mouth, all of the hosts of heaven were made. Now, if you've been here long enough, you know that there's a specific way that Hebrew poetry works, okay? So our poetry usually works by like rhythm or meter or rhyme, uh, but in the uh, ancient Hebrew poetry, it works by what's called parallelism. Uh, and what that means is two lines are placed parallel to one another, and the whole idea is that you, uh, they invite comparison. Uh, so you look for what's similar, you look for what's different, but you want to juxtapose them and think about it. It's a way to explore a topic more in depth. In this case, we have the heavens made parallel with the host. Remember, host is just a fancy way of saying the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, let's think about this for a minute. If you remember from Genesis 1-2, what we talked about last week, if you were here last week, the earth starts out and it's without form meaning it's disordered, it's chaotic, and it's also empty, okay? So that was the, the starting point of creation. In the creation story, then, God, in the first three days, separates light and dark. He uh, separates the land and the sea. He separates the earth and the sky. What's he doing? He's creating order. So the world's disordered. It's formless. What's he doing the first three days of creation? Giving it form. Then, on the next three days, he fills this newly ordered creation. So, he solved the problem of formlessness. Then we have the problem of emptiness, right? So, he fills it with uh, the sun, moon, stars, trees, plants, animals, all of those things. So, in this verse, we have that same idea being played out in these two lines. The first line, the heavens are made. Uh, so that's the order, creating the ordered realm, form out of formlessness. And then the second line, we have it being filled with its hosts. So formless and emptiness have been dealt with. Um, however, if we look at how this happens in the first line, it is the word of the Lord that does this. 
But then in the parallel line, what is it? It's the breath of the Lord. Now, in other words, the word of the Lord that, as we said earlier, reveals God to the world, establishes orders, it issues commands to create a just society, it makes promises, is synonymous with the breath of God. And of course, we know what's the Hebrew word for breath. Ruach. Yes, Ruach. Yes, we are not going to get through a sermon without mentioning Ruach, right? So Ruach is, uh, again, uh, uh, you know, for those keeping score at home, is the Hebrew word for the, the, the spirit. And, you know, we talked about in the first sermon, it's kind of an ambiguous word. And uh, it, it, it can mean breath, it can mean wind, uh, it can mean spirit. And so here uh, it, it's translated as breath, but it's all the same word, ruach. So what this, what, what this psalmist is telling us is that the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is equivalent to the word of the Lord. That same word of the Lord that spoke creation into existence the same word of the Lord that establishes justice and righteousness and causes the kindness of the Lord to fill the earth. And notice too how the psalmist continues this thought in verse 7. He gathers the waters, uh, the, the waters of the sea in a heap, and then he also he puts the deep in storehouses. And so, all right, here's the question. For a thousand resurrection church points, who can tell me what the Hebrew word for the deep is? Anybody remember? Last week, a thousand resurrection church points here, people. To whom? It's the same word that we talked about last week for the deep waters, you know, these chaotic, threatening waters. So, it, so clearly what we have is, is the psalmist has absorbed these ideas from Genesis 1. Uh, here the life-given waters are gathered together and they're made useful for life, but the chaotic depths, the to home that we talked about last week is put away. Order has been created rather than disorder. So it's the Holy Spirit in which the glory and the splendor of the Lord is revealed in the world, bringing about just not, not just life, but also order in creation, righteousness, justice. The psalmist links all of these ideas together here. He doesn't see any distinctions uh, that we might draw. In last week's sermon, I, I described the work of the Holy Spirit in creation as bringing life and flourishing as it transformed the chaotic deep into the life-giving waters. And I use this word flourishing specifically because I thought it was the best word to emphasize that this transformation was not just about bringing life into existence, right? But it was also about creating the conditions for life to be abundant, to grow, to be full, Okay, it wasn't just about existence, but more than that. So what we see in Psalms 33 is the psalmist in his meditation fully developing this role of the Holy Spirit, uh, of adding uh, a flourishing to life and in creation. Um, you know, and, and so flourishing, uh, this idea of justice and righteousness, if we think about that in terms of, of what's needed for a society to flourish, it all kind of makes a little more sense. As good poetry does, Psalm 30, 33 shows how seemingly disparate ideas are actually related, and they allow us to expand our view 
of the nature of reality. And in this case, it's the nature of the Holy Spirit that is being expanded here. That's, that's why we're studying this psalm. That's why this is, this is good poetry. This is good for us to do. This is somebody who sat down and thought about this. And so the idea about having like justice and righteousness and creation now are all linked together. Um, now, thinking about this, let's shift to our second psalm, Psalm 104. A little bit longer, but we can again find the psalmist meditating on this same idea uh, about creation. And we have these, these beautiful, like vivid images of God setting up heaven like a tent and laying out wooden beams to make holding tanks for the water. Uh, I particularly love the picture in verse 8 uh, of, of how God orders creation. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the places you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. I think that's beautiful. Uh, any of us who have been to a mountaintop and looked at the surrounding countryside are probably familiar with this awe that that perspective brings. Uh, you see these mountains and valleys. And, and you know, think about that with the, the, the creator, you know, the power of the creator directing all of these places exactly in the places he wants them to be. That is the kind of idea. That's the emotion. That's the, the idea in his mind that the psalmist is drawing from. And, and the reason I, I kind of want to point this out is because, you know, a lot of times I think we've, we feel so disconnected from the text. You know, we don't feel like a part of the text. And I think it's important, like, we, we think about this is a guy. I mean, you know, it could be a girl. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, this psalmist uh, is sitting around, you know, probably, you know, who knows, went to a mountain just like maybe you all uh, have done at a time. And he's just thought about this. Wow. You know, um, and so, you know, this is something you can do too. I mean, your real world experiences can lead to thinking about the wonder and beauty of creation. And what the Psalms do is teach us that that's worship, all right? You know, that's worship too. But here's the thing though. The reason I want us to look at this Psalms is that while this Psalm begins with creation, it moves in a little bit different, a related, but a little bit different direction, okay? So, so follow with me here. Springs gush forth so they can give drink to the beast of the field. Plants grow for humans to cultivate wine and oil and bread. The trees are watered and then in turn provide nests for the birds. The, season, or the, the seasons are marked out uh, by the moon and the sun. So, so you see in all of this, you know, there's this regularity. There's this dependability about how the world's being described. It's, it's interacting. Uh, and, and, and the psalmist is fascinated with this. And he sees the hand of God behind it. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made it them all. The earth is full of your creation, your creatures. So it's not just the creation that the psalmist is fascinated with, but it's the order and, uh, you know, what we would call natural processes by which the different parts of creation interact. How creation works together is a system. Uh, you know, you might think of something like, uh, like in school when you, when you learned about the water cycle or something like that, you know, how, how it all works together. Uh, in wonder, uh, the psalmist here is contemplating how creation is continually sustained, how it's nourished, it interacts, it's rejuvenated and restored. 
Um, and interestingly, this fascination with the cycles and circles of life found in creation is far more celebrated in the Old Testament than the creation event itself. Uh, this was actually like a way more important. And, and it makes sense when you think about it, because if you think about the ancient world, it was basically, it was like dangerous. And uh, their existence was a lot more precarious than we can possibly imagine. I mean, we basically set up our whole lives uh, to function as orderly and regularly as possible. Uh, you know, it's even difficult for us to accept that there are factors outside of our control. Um, I, I'm actually really good friends with this lady who runs a, a, a strawberry field, right? You know, this one of these you pick strawberry farms. And she tells me these hilarious stories every year about people calling up and just being upset that they can't pick strawberries in August or how, uh, you know, they'll call and they'll say, like, is it going to rain next week? Or, you know, just stupid questions because they just don't get like, there's no way to answer this. There's there's some disorder in our world. But the psalmist here is just really fascinated by this idea of how, how there's an order to the way the world works. And so as he passionately explores this theme, he works his way to a climax. And that climax we come to in verse 29. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, their ruach, they die and return to the dust. So here, what we have is a negative example where the absence of Ruach leads to death. But then we get to verse 30. Verse 30 continues with God sending forth his spirit and creating life and renewing the face of the ground. It is this renewal, this renewing that we find the psalmist celebrating. So what we've learned here in this psalm is that the spirit is not just about bringing about existence, but also this flourishing and renewal, this relating, this interacting of creation. You know, the big theological word here is probably like uh, providence, okay? So if you're looking for a, a theology term to hang it on, providence. But, but you know, we might just call it just like the, the natural processes of life. So, okay, that's cool. Um, you know, that's what the Psalms are about here, and it's pretty and everything like that. But, but what does that mean for us? And, and I think a couple of things. Uh, first, again, and this is a theme I'm going to hit on all throughout the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because uh, a sermon series, because this is what's really hit me. I kind of came in here, you know, Chris did this like awesome job of working through the New Testament and Lucia wanted to hear it in the Old Testament. I kind of felt like uh, it's my responsibility to do this. And I, I kind of came in here not really having... Uh, an idea or agenda. I was like, I'm simply going to look at these texts. I'm going to kind of work through them and uh, try to, and, and the thing that really hit me is, is the Holy Spirit, the ideas of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament are a lot, a lot bigger uh, than, than I thought they were. There, there's a much more expansive view. Uh, and, and see, here's what, what happens. This is my big idea. I'm, I'm basically going to hit a version of this the next few weeks. We think that the Spirit is working in some sort of supernatural way that rarely happens. And even when people like act like it does happen, you know, like I remember being in college and like going to a charismatic church one time and I was just like, these people are crazy. 
you know? I'm like totally like, I don't buy any of this. This is just a show. And I remember, you know, there was some church in Florida that everybody was going to like during spring break or something like that because they had been in revival for four years. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that to me was what the Holy Spirit, you know, it's just like, it, it, it's supernatural, it's rare, and it probably doesn't happen that often. We're probably not going to come across with it. And when I do hear people talking about it, I'm instantly like, write it off. I'm skeptical. But I think it's this view that has really led to this absence of the Holy Spirit in most of our thoughts and teachings. I mean, other than these charismatic churches. And that's why I think it's important that we expand our view of the Spirit so that we can, we can, you know, reclaim that. I mean, reclaim this like really important concept. If we limit the role of the Holy Spirit, then we limit the Holy Spirit's impact and presence in our life in our church. But so, so here we go. Notice what the psalmist thinks about the Holy Spirit. The psalmist looks around and sees the Holy Spirit present and active everywhere. And that activity and presence is found in things like trees being watered and birds and nests. The Holy Spirit is active and present in the moon and the stars and the mountaintops and with gazelles and badgers. And it's hard for us because those sorts of patterns, and, and, and I think it is hard for us to kind of reclaim this view. <clears throat> That's why I wanted to look at the Psalms. Because, see, here's the thing. Um, those, those patterns, those interactions, those rhythms of nature, they've become demystified to us, okay? I mean, we understand better, you know? We, we understand better the chemical and material processes behind this. And I think this has led to, uh, there's this actually a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. He calls this disenchantment. It's led to this idea of disenchantment. But I think if we look at these Psalms and if we think about these things and we think about the Spirit and we don't just relegate it to this weird supernatural thing that doesn't happen very often, then we can recover a sense of this enchantment of the natural world without abandoning the incredible knowledge with our gain that we've gained. We just need to be able to see the Holy Spirit is present in those places as well. We need to recover a view of the world that sees beauty and mystery. We need to recover a view, a, a, a view of the world that sees the sublime and the details of biochemistry and quantum physics in the Krebs cycle and Schrodinger's wave equation. We need to see the world as more than a resource to be consumed, but as a world of fascination. We need to recover this childlike wonder in things like animals and butterflies and mountaintops. We need experiences, we need art, we need songs, and we need poetry that help us to see this wonder. And we need people to do those things. If you are a student then, that means you can find the Holy Spirit so, so in, in things like earth science or chemistry or biology. You know, all of these things are an opportunity to see the Holy Spirit at work. It isn't just this rare, weird thing that happens that uh, it's happened in the Bible. It's just like miracles and people prophesying in junk. No, you can see this in your everyday world. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. If you're a parent, that means you can study and learn and be fascinated alongside your children. How many of us just, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's one of the great things about having little kids, right? Is being fascinated with the world alongside them, seeing it through their eyes for the first time. Um, 
You know, that's what's great about it. If you're an adult, it means you can study and find fascinating in astronomy or bird watching or hiking or whatever it is. Uh, you know, go listen to someone speak passionately about one of these topics and don't think of it as trivial or a waste of time. The idea that what is useful is the only thing that is important is what we need to move away from. Far from it. All of these are ways to experience the Holy Spirit in your life and recover the enchantment that we have lost from the world. So that's the first thing, I think. Second, as we have heard in these Psalms, the glory and the fullness of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit is intimately linked to creation. As the psalmist finds the Holy Spirit's role in sustaining and ordering creation for the purpose of life, abundance, and flourishing means God cares for and is involved in creation. So what does that mean? Very practical. That means that the care of creation is part of our work as a spiritual-filled community. We are connected to the earth just as we are connected to each other. And so we have a responsibility to the earth just as we have a responsibility to each other. Our religious and spiritual lives are not just about individual personal morality, though they are that, but they also involve things like ecology and conservation, okay? That's why it's important to expand this view of the Holy Spirit. So we see all of this is connected. We divide all these things up. We say, oh yeah, this is like political and this is theological and this is secular. But the psalmist isn't doing that, right? So we need to, 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 to come back to these ideas about seeing an integrated, holistic view of the world and the Holy Spirit and not so much a division between what is religious and what's secular. Allowing and continuing the work of the Holy Spirit is, look, I, I mean, it's certainly about more than studying science and recycling. I'm not trying to say that that's all it's about. But it is not less than that. Too often we focus on the spirit of salvation and not the spirit of creation and life. But here's the thing, the spirit is both, okay? That's what we're, we're trying to recover here. The spirit's not just about the hope for the next world, but for this world as well, because the goal is the redemption of all of creation. If we want the Holy Spirit to be relevant, and I think we should, then we need to expand our view of the Holy Spirit because what the Holy Spirit does is not just about of individual significance to our own life, as important as that is, but also of cosmic significance to all of creation. And we need to inject some wonder and fascination into our disenchanted age for ourselves and for others and to recover the, the, the beauty of it all. We need to see the glory and splendor of a creator who began creation, but who also loves and cares for creation. As his image and likeness, our mission is to promote life as well as its abundance and flourishing, both in this creation and into the new creation.